Well, this morning we will continue on in the book of 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and our main text this morning will be verses 3 to 5. And I've entitled this message, The Living Hope. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I don't know if many of you have heard or probably are familiar with the name Joel Olstein, but also know of a book that he has written. It is called Your Best Life Now. It is a book written to the believer, quote-unquote believer, regarding their best life now and how this life on earth and how they can live it as being their best life and how God just wants them to bless them with abundance, with joy. And recently he had a clip that was making its round on social media again where he told his congregation of, well, he usually preaches to about 50,000 people on a Sunday morning. And he was telling them how God would not be pleased with his children if they didn't dress properly and weren't well attired and didn't have all these things. And really, in all honesty, I think we could say that that is a demonic doctrine, that God requires his children to to be wealthy, to be blessed with um, material wealth and all those things. It is not what the Bible teaches. But he writes a book, Your Best Life Now, that basically underlines this idea of how God wants to bless us with material wealth, health, and all those things, and that if you just have enough faith, right, we can, we can live this life here now. And yet we see so clearly in the letter that we're going to be looking at today how God's Word is the exact opposite. It doesn't promise us our best life now. In fact, it seems to be doing the exact opposite. It promises us trials. It promises us hardships. It promises us those things. But it gives us instruction as to how to live. And it gives us a hope. The message again this morning entitled, The Living Hope. Peter shows us this hope that we have in the midst of trials. And if we start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we see a very stark contrast between the message of Scripture and the message of someone like Joel Olstein, who, yes, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing and is to be marked and avoided by the church because he is leading people to a different gospel. He is leading people to a path where you can never do enough. Just have more faith. If you're not wealthy, you don't have enough faith. What does that do? It makes you go out. It's a very legalistic gospel. And Paul is very clear in Galatians chapter 1, anyone who preaches a gospel different than his, that gospel is anathema and that teacher is anathema. Because we see in Scripture that our best life isn't now. As believers, our hope is the fact that we are not in our best life now. The only people who are living their best life now are those who will not be in heaven. This is the worst our life will get as believers. 
and it will get better once we enter into glory, once we get into the presence of God, we're removed from this world. So let's look at what Peter has to say for us. And he again, in our introduction, just a bit of a recap from last time, the first two verses, he outlines the nature of our election as God's children, our status, our eternal position with God. We are elected is that God chose us apart from any outside influence. The condition of our election, and just just a recap here, is that we are exiles dispersed in a foreign land. The source of our election is God's predeterminate foreknowledge. It is in His mind, He knew it into reality. He knew it into existence. Same as in the beginning, God spoke and created. He spoke that which was his thought, his mind, and that is what created. God does not need or have external influences that influence his creation, his election, his will, his work. He knows in his mind and he knows it into reality. He knows it into existence. So what then was the purpose of our election? We see that as well in the first two verses. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. Again, familiar verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Peter also wraps up the summary. He summarizes the result of our election by using a customary New Testament greeting. Where he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The end of verse 2, after he expounds on God's saving grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see in a sense the simple greeting, again, the cause and effect of the whole gospel in our salvation. The cause is the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon sinful man. It is His marvelous grace. The effect that what we receive and what it does to us is a peace with God. And again, we're not talking about a peace where there's a lack of suffering, a lack of persecution, a lack of trials and hardships. We all know those things exist. We've all been through varying degrees of that. So what is this peace that He is exhorting us with? Grace and peace be with you. Well, the effect is a peace with God. Though we toil and suffer during our time of exile here on earth, we know the result of God's grace that has been lavished on us abundantly is that we are no longer at enmity with God. But peace has been made by the sacrifice of His Son, and this is the foundation of the living hope that we'll be looking at today. This is the foundation of our living hope as we face, as did the Christians in Peter's day, trials of various kinds, as he says in verse 6. So the first point we want to look at, what is the basis of our living hope? What is the basis of the living hope? Verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter starts with this exhortation. So immediately after we have the salutation in verses 1 and 2 where he outlines and gives credit to God for His election, His foreknowledge, His sanctifying us in the Spirit for obedience to Christ, His sprinkling with His blood, His grace being given to us, His peace being given to us. He starts with, Blessed be the God and Father. He has highlighted the sovereign, gracious work of God and salvation. And then Peter shows us what the result of this grace and salvation should produce in the lives of the elect. By calling to his reader, calling his reader, sorry, to bless, which means to praise God. The result of verses one and two, where he has outlined this, he's called us now into a blessing. To blessed be the God and Father. We now bless God. We praise Him 
for His work in salvation. This is the natural outflow or response of what is taught in the first two verses of First Peter. Our thankfulness to God for His great gift of salvation. Peter also personalizes the believer's relationship with God when he appeals to Him as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God was always referred to as Creator, Redeemer, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and terms like that, but seldom as Father. But in the Gospel, Jesus always refers to God as His Father, indicating His intimate relationship with the Father, as well as His shared nature or being or essence with the Father. Remember the uh, persecution Christ Himself received from the Jews when He identified Himself, uh, God, as His Father. Because it made Him of equal standing. It made Him of equal essence in that sense and nature of God. And God being the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ then indicates our personal relationship with God the Father, for we too are united with Christ. Let's take a quick peek I'll read two verses, one in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says, And if children, let's start verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we are made joint heirs with Christ. We are children of God. We are adopted into the family. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we are made joint heirs with Him, and we are hidden in Christ. So, if God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and because of salvation, because of being adopted into the family, we then become joint heirs and united with Christ, we are in Christ, then in fact, He is also our Father. So Peter starts this with a very personal, yet comforting blessing here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of this epistle is to encourage the child of God through suffering, through trials, as we saw in the prologue when we uh, two service, sermons ago when I preached on the, uh, the, preached the prologue to this book, sorry. The purpose is to encourage a child of God through these suffering and trials. And so by establishing this personal relationship with God as our Father, it would do specifically that. It would serve well in doing just that. It would comfort the readers, knowing that God is their personal Father. They have a personal relationship through Jesus Christ now with God the Father. And though they are exiles in a foreign land, in the midst of spiritual warfare, surrounded by trials and persecutions that often cause great suffering, Peter starts off by pointing to God's grace and mercy in salvation. And he focuses his readers' minds on this living hope that God has produced in us. This hope that we now have. And so he's building up to contrast the rest of the book, so much of First Peter is filled with outlining the sufferings, the trials that the church is facing, the persecutions, and even the promise of doing so. But before he gets into that, he starts by looking at this living hope. He starts by talking about salvation. He starts by talking about God's grace and peace. He talks about it, and we'll see it further in the passages from this morning. He talks about how eternal it is, and how great it is, and how glorious it is. So he puts our minds, he establishes our minds on the eternal. He, he gets us to look beyond the temporary, beyond the here and now, filled with its um, sufferings and trials and, and, and persecutions, to look beyond that to the eternal glory of salvation, to the eternal glory of our living hope, of our inheritance. And he prepares us 
then to move into verse 6 where he says again, though now, you know, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary you have grieved by various trials. So he puts it into light, the weight of eternity versus our temporary affliction, our temporary sorrows. And he goes on in verse 2, or sorry, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To be caused to be born again is translated from a word that means to give new life. New birth, or a word we've all heard before, regeneration. To be regenerated, to be made new, born again. We have been made to be regenerated according to God's mercy. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We see here again, as in the first two verses, that God is active in this process and we are passive. If you look at those first verses, verses 1 through um, 5, sorry, verses 1 through 5, and you just look at all the action that's taking place where God is active, elect exiles, sanctification of the Spirit according to His foreknowledge, sprinkling with His blood. And then in verse 3, according to His great mercy, He has caused. And then in verse 4, kept in heaven. And in verse 5, by God's power are being guarded. We see how active God is. God the Father, He's doing all the work in these uh, verses. He's the one who is active. Therefore, we are passive. We are receiving these things. We are the ones to whom these things have been given. So it is of God. God is the one working. We are the ones receiving. For He is causing this to take place. So we are born according to His will. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, speak of this specifically when he says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born again according to the Spirit. Further in John Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So we are born again according to His will. We are born again according to the Spirit. But we're also born again. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're also born again into God's family as heirs. Starting in verse 4 of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And once again in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. And feel free to just listen along rather than flip back and forth if you don't want to. But in verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, 
Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As we read before, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we are part of God's family. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And according to our text, we are born again to a living hope. This hope we have is so much more than merely a desire or a wish. Peter qualifies it by describing it as living. This paints for us a picture of a vibrant hope. The word translated into living can also be translated into vibrant. It gives us a picture. It is not just a, a stale or um, dead hope. It is, it is living. It is vibrant. And it is, this word is used in this context. It, it speaks of an anticipation, an expectation, or a confidence. MacArthur defines our living hope like this in his commentary, and he gives ten points with Scripture behind each one of them to show what the, uh, how Scripture speaks of the hope that we have as God's children. You don't need to flip back and forth. I'll go through them quick, but there's ten points. So the living hope is eternal life. Hope means a confident optimism. And one, it comes from God. Psalm 43.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Second point in defining hope. It is a gift of grace. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, through grace. Third point. It is defined by Scripture. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Fourth point. It is a reasonable reality. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So it is reasonable. Fifth point, it is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John fifteen or sorry, John eleven verse twenty five to twenty six says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The sixth point. Our hope is confirmed in the believer by the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The seventh point. Hope defends the Christian against Satan's attacks. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of love, of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Number 8. Hope is confirmed through trials. Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope produces joy. Number 9. Psalm 146, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And lastly, number 10, hope is fulfilled in Christ's return. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see clearly that this living hope is the assurance, assurance of the believer's eternal in, inheritance and salvation.
It is not some blind hope that leaves us unsure, hoping that we've done enough to please God or in some way to qualify for our salvation. It is not a hope where we wish or where we hope again that somehow maybe we've done enough. It is a living hope. It is a vibrant hope. It is a hope based on God's Word, on His character, on His promises. And so, the basis of our living hope, we've looked a little bit at what our living hope is and what it looks like. So the basis, point A, the mercy of God. We now look at the basis of this living hope and Peter breaks it up into two points. A, the mercy of God and B, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first point, the mercy of God. And he says again in verse 3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The word translated in our text as mercy means to have compassion or pity. It parallels the use of grace in highlighting the undeserved nature of our salvation in pointing to the cause as God's own mercy and grace and nothing of ourselves. Peter puts extra emphasis on God's mercy by implying that the vast magnitude and abundance when he speaks of God's great mercy according to His great mercy. It is not only impeccable, it is not only great as in how wonderful it is, but also in abundance. We cannot reach the ends of His mercy. It is according to His great mercy that He causes us to be born again to this living hope. His mercy, in a word, is the efficient cause of our regeneration. It is according to His mercy when He has compassion on us. We have nothing in and of ourselves to make us more desirable to God. Our best works are as filthy rags to God when we try to earn righteousness, when we try to do good enough. We cannot. But His mercy alone causes Him to pity us, to have compassion on us. And in doing this, His great mercy or His grace and mercy is revealed through love and all glory then goes to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ for their work. Because it is their work that brings us to salvation. God provides salvation because He is merciful. And we need God's mercy because we are wretched sinners. The second point of basis for this living hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 3 says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So He has caused us to be born again to this living hope according to His great mercy and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The efficient cause of our living hope is we saw His great mercy. This cause is actuated, it is made real through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This living hope is regarded as undying Because Jesus Christ, the one in whom our hope is found, was Himself raised from the dead unto everlasting life. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He was um, executed, died, and raised to eternal life. This is why our hope is living. Because it is based on the one who conquered death. Christ shows His power over death by coming out from among the dead. And God, because of His great mercy, unites us together with Christ in this eternal life. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Christ defeats death. Christ conquers death. He is raised to everlasting life. He is eternal past. He's eternal forward. Our hope is in Him. God unites us together with Christ. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, conquering death. We are united to him. He lives for all eternity. Our hope is a living hope that is based on the resurrected Christ. So again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's look at the content of this hope now. We find the content outlined and defined for us in verses 4 to 5. We've looked at the basis of our living hope. So as we look at the content, let's summarize this into two points. A, an inheritance of great quality, and B, our salvation. Peter goes on in the next two verses to define what this living hope looks like. Our inheritance and salvation. So if we look at verses 3, 4, and 5, we see these words, living hope, inheritance in verse 4, and in verse 5, salvation. Let's make sure that our inheritance and salvation is not understood as a further result of being born again. It is not that we have been caused to be born again to a living hope, and we've been given an inheritance, and we've been given salvation. But more so, we need to understand that inheritance and salvation they are not additional features added to our living hope but rather they should be seen as further defining this living hope revealing the nature of this hope to his readers is what peter is doing here he is giving us an illustration you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ and now he's defining that to show them what this living hope is what is the content of this hope So the first point under the content of this hope is A, it is an inheritance of great quality. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. To an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We are caused to be born again to a living hope. In verse 3. And here in verse 4, we can read this as a continuation. Where we are caused to be born again to an inheritance. So we've been caused to be born again to a living hope. We've been caused to be born again to an inheritance. And what is the Christian's inheritance exactly? It is Jesus Christ Himself plus all the blessings that He has promised us as we are made joint heirs with Him, as we've seen several times already this morning in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. The Israelites in the Old Testament look forward to their inheritance, referring to the promised land. And we, Christians, look forward to our promise of inheritance in eternity. Peter again articulates this inheritance further by showing us that this inheritance, again, we'll break it down a little bit more is one, it is not ephemeral, and we'll define that a little bit later, and two, it is kept in heaven, and three, it is guarded by God through faith. We see that in verse 4. So it is not ephemeral. Our inheritance is not ephemeral. This means it does not only last for a short time, but rather Peter defines it as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
It is not subject to destruction, defilement, or decay. It is eternal. Imperishable means it refers to that which cannot be ravaged by death. Undefiled refers to that which is unstained by evil. And unfading refers to that which is not affected by the passing of time. So these three adjectives Peter used to describe our inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. No one can ravage or pollute our inheritance. It will never wear out or waste away. The second point in our inheritance, it is kept in heaven. But rather, our inheritance, it will not fade away or waste away, but rather, our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Being kept here is in regard to our inheritance, and it refers to the secure nature of this inheritance. We see also that it is kept for you or us, indicating once again that we are passive in this, therefore God is the one who is active. He is the one who is doing the keeping, as it were. He is the one keeping our inheritance, guarding it, giving it this imperishable, undefiled, unfading nature. It is kept in heaven, a state of eternal bliss. It is kept in heaven. Heaven is for eternity. It is a state of eternal bliss, indicating again the eternal hope our inheritance brings. It's not temporary. It is not a temporal hope only for the here and now, only if conditions are met, only if you can do this, only if you can do that, only if the weather is this way, only if all these things fall into place. It is not a temporary hope. It is an eternal hope that is kept in heaven for eternity. And it is kept in heaven for you, meaning it is for our benefit. God is keeping this eternal inheritance kept in heaven for you, verse 4 says. It is for our benefit. It is being reserved or preserved by the greatest power of all, God Himself. And because of this, we know that it is beyond the reach of danger. Third point Peter uses to define this inheritance. It is guarded by God through faith. Peter continues to build on this when he writes, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So he ends verse 4, Kept in heaven for you. Then he starts verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Showing once more that God is the subject who is active. And we are the object, the ones receiving the action. God in His supreme power omniscience, omnipotence, and sovereignty. He not only keeps the inheritance, but also guards us and keeps us secure by His power and sustains us to the end. Let's jump for a second to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1. Starting verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are lacking in nothing, lacking in any gift. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. And God is faithful. Paul also reiterates this thought in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The apostles give us this confidence that God is the one who's guarding us and keeping us. He is the one that will see us through 
and protect us. Jesus Christ sustains us and He will, who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is so clear on this. It is God who saves, keeps, guards, protects, and sustains us. All this is appropriated. It is taken for our own use through faith. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith. And yet, even our faith is not something we ourselves can take credit for. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Being saved by grace through faith is a gift that God gives us. By His grace through faith, it places all the work again into God's power. Because of His mercy, He grants us faith. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The writer of Hebrew also makes this clear. And is a concise statement in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, regarding the source of our faith, when he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The author and perfecter, or the founder and perfecter. Some versions say the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ is the founder. He is the author of our faith. And He is also the finisher, the perfecter of it. He's the one that helps us grow in it. He sustains us, as we read in 1 Corinthians. So it is God's power that keeps the believer saved. And in this, we have assurance. And the last point, God guards us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So the last point, and this point goes back to the content of our hope, is our salvation. God guards us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation here gives us another perspective on the living hope of verse 3. And it serves, as did inheritance, to further define this living hope. These three all tie together then as Peter has illustrated the content of this living hope through his use of inheritance and salvation. The promise of this salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, is the aspect of our salvation that we have yet to enjoy. It is speaking of our glorification. When God justifies us, He saved us from the penalty of sin. As He sanctifies us, He is saving us from the power of sin. And when He glorifies us in the last day, He will ultimately save us from the presence of sin forever. So when we're justified, our salvation, the Bible speaks of our salvation in a past tense. You who have been saved. A past tense, it's speaking of our justification. It also speaks of an ongoing present tense when it speaks of you who are being saved, or when it speaks of our sanctification, it is a present tense, but then there's also the future tense of our ultimate salvation. And as Peter uses in this verse 5, through, self, uh, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It's not that we aren't saved now, but he's speaking of the future tense of our salvation, which is our glorification. And in each one of these, we're only speaking of one plan of salvation. There's not Three plans, if you do this, and then if you do this, and if you do that. Salvation as a whole is a gift of God by grace through faith. And it includes past tense justification, present tense sanctification, which begins at justification, which is also why Paul can refer to our sanctification as 
past tense when he says, you who have been justified or have been sanctified. Because our sanctification begins at that point. And then it carries through to our point of glorification. But all of these wrapped up give us the one term, and that is biblical salvation. And it is all by grace through faith that God gives us our salvation. And again, in justification, He saves us from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, He saves us from the power of sin as we're progressively being changed into His likeness, as we start gaining victory over sins in our life, and as we move ahead and become more transformed into the likeness of Christ. And then ultimately, in our glorification, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. It will no longer be around us. It will no longer be in us. We will not be tempted at all. God is guarding us during our time as exiles on this earth. He is guarding us for our inheritance that will be fully ours at the time of our final glorification. Peter's intent here is to nourish and sustain our hope by pointing to the eternal state that the saved will share with the glory of God, share in the glory of God. So in conclusion, as Peter transitions into addressing our trials in verse 6, he has now established and defined this living hope of all who have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And as we saw in the prologue to 1 Peter, Christians are expected to suffer here on earth. Our text today Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Then he goes on into verse 6. In this, in this promise, in this salvation, in this inheritance, in this uh, living hope, In this you rejoice, though now for a little time. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The church is to rejoice in the hope of the gospel. The promised inheritance of eternal salvation. Even though for a little while we are faced with these trials. He has contrasted, Peter contrasts our eternal hope with the temporal suffering that we face now causing his readers, us, to look beyond the trials of the here and now, look beyond the sufferings that we are going through, and put our focus on Christ in glory, in eternity. That's what puts our trials. By doing this contrast, he has put our trials in their proper place as we see them as something that can afflict us for now. And as hard as they can be, we have an eternal, unchanging, immovable, not fading hope that we can keep our focus on to help us navigate this life, to help us walk through these trials, to help us through times of grief, to help us through times of persecution, times of suffering. Peter understands that suffering will be normal for the obedient Christian. He says in chapter 2, verse 21 of 1 Peter, because Christ first suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in suffering. Persecution will be a result of following Christ, for the world hated Him first. Therefore it will hate us. And again, it is to this end that Scriptures speak much of the eternal glory of God and our inheritance with Christ as the contrast to this temporary time of affliction here on earth. Peter also makes again the point of Christ's suffering setting an example for us when he says in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So why would we not expect to suffer for doing good when Christ, the righteous, suffered and gave Himself for us, the unrighteous? So when Jesus calls us to suffer, He understands how we feel and what we are going through. He also suffered. And He is our example in having done so. 
Peter further encourages us with this exhortation in chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His suffering is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we see suffering as a common theme all throughout the New Testament Scriptures. Christ suffered, leaving us an example, and by sharing in His suffering, we also shall become partakers in His glory, as we saw earlier in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 8. Christians are expected to suffer here on earth, as we are exiles, we are strangers, we are sojourners in a foreign land, a land that is ruled by the enemy, but we have not been left without a hope. Not even with a blind, wishful hope, where we can just hope that these things will take place and come true. But rather, as has been said time and time again this morning, we have a living hope. And Peter uses this to train our focus. And my prayer this morning is that we can do this as well. That we can train our focus on the eternal glory of this living hope, of this inheritance, of this salvation. Focus on eternal glory as a means to endure through the temporal sufferings of our life here and now. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You again for Your goodness, Your mercy, Your grace. God, we thank You for this living hope that You have promised us, that You have given us. God, it is undefiled, imperishable, unfading. It is kept in heaven for us. And even ourselves, God, You are the one guarding. We thank You for that. And help us to look at these promises of this eternal glory, of this eternal bliss, Lord. Help us to look at that and keep that in the forefront of our minds as we toil through this land, as we toil through this foreign country, this world. Help us, God, to keep You in our focus. To look to the face of God as we pray as we fellowship and as we grow as a church and as we move forward through this, help us, Lord, to have Christ as the center of our heart and mind through all things, good and bad. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.